This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. It is an absolute joy to be joined by Armando Iannucci, the man behind, on the hour, the day-to-day, Saturday Night Armistice, the Armando Iannucci shows, Alan Partridge, the thick of it, in the loop, time trumpet, Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle, Veep, death of Stalin. Armando, is there anything that you've done which was rubbish? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll leave that for others to say. Does that sound like a politician's answer? (laughs) It is a little bit of a politician's (laughs) answer. That's a rubbish policy. Uh, uh, well, I mean... You have had an extraordinary... I mean, mm. there were loads of people who'd be happy to have been involved in one of those shows. Never mind, what was it, a dozen? I have a constant... I remember once talking to some sixth formers and uh, and you get really great questions from yeah. when you go around schools, actually. Questions that journalists don't ask. And the first question I got was, when you start a new project, how do you overcome your fear of failure? And it kind of completely <laughs> floored me. And I had to think and... And I th- and the answer is, I go into each project assuming it's my first one or pretending it's my first one because you've got to go into it with the passion and vigor and concentration that you do when you when you're starting out. So I, I tend to, irrespective of what the last project was, forget it never happened, uh, uh, pretend it never happened, so that you're not, you, the, so that you're not in any danger of sort of coasting of doing the same thing twice. The interesting thing about the way that you work, we'll come on to mm. Avenue 5 in a moment, mm. but you're not someone who, sort of a normal career path, is someone who was really involved in the writing and all of that at the beginning, and then gradually they become mm. increasingly detached and, you know, executive producers attached to things. But you're still really involved in... I am, I can't project. do this. I've never started my own sort of production company or tried to... Occasionally, once the BBC and once, you know, when I was freelance, I, I kind of oversaw other projects, but... I can't do that thing of of being half in, half out. I, 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 when I left, I left Veep after season four because I sort of felt I'd taken it as far as I wanted to take it. And they said, you want to stay on as a consultant? I said, no, just <laughs> just treat me as if I'm dead. <laughs> um, because I can't, you know, whoever's taking over it, Dave Mandel, who did a great job, he's got to feel he's in charge. And if I'm looking at it thinking, oh, maybe I could tweak that, you know, it, it would never... It's not great same. for anyone, is it? You no. don't have the control you want and you, I, yeah. nobody else wants exactly. you going, oh, well, I wouldn't have it, done it like I'd, that. I'd be like the old retired Pope next door, <laughs> just with a, with a glass to the wall, just going, what's he up to now? What's Tut- this? Tutting. What, but ending celibacy for... What's going on? <laughs> 
I wasn't expecting this. Let's talk about your <laughs> your new project. Yeah. Avenue 5. Explain mm. it. It's set in 40 years' time yeah. when space tourism is much more achievable. And it's the maiden voyage of... Uh, there's this guy, Herman Judd, who owns these... He, he's made his fortune from holidays. And his now new big idea is holidays in space. And this is the maiden voyage of a sort of cruise ship round Saturn and back, 5,000 passengers, 1,500 crew. Normally takes eight weeks. Something goes wrong. It could be at least eight, three years before they get back. And so it's really... It's really just about putting a sort of pressure cooker in space of, of six and a half thousand people who have to start again, you know, have to decide between them how to get out of this. The thing that struck me was my initial thought was, blimey, space is a departure from the sort of mm. generally pretty sort of hyper-realistic stuff that you do. But actually, having I've watched the first episode. It's really striking how Ryan Clark, the Hugh Laurie catcher, who's the mm. nominal captain of the ship, yeah. is essentially in the same mould as... Nicola Murray in the thick of it or Vice President in Veep because it's just someone who everyone is looking to and it turns out they're just a human being and they don't really know what they're doing either. Yes, he, he is, he's, it turns out he's a literal fake. <laughs> um, and and because I, I wanted to capture this thing of, yeah, A, that thing that I think we all have, which is, I remember when we were, rehears- were researching uh, In The Loop and we're going around Washington and somebody telling me that when Henry Kissinger started at the White House under Nixon, he'd spend the first year going, am I doing okay? Am I all right? Do you think he likes me? What do you think? Am I all right? And I thought, that's Henry Kissinger. I think we all have this ingrown yeah. fear of being found out, of fear that we're the one who's, who's not pulling our weight. And I wanted to explore this, but also I think really pick up on something that's been going on in the last four or five years, the kind of the feeling of frenzy that's out there you know, in the in the great human public. This air of dissatisfaction, but you can't quite put a word on it, you can't quite describe it, but a, a sense that something's about to blow, but yeah. we don't know what, and can we get... A, and, and also a sense of impending apocalypse. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, you know, it's taken one 60-year-old girl to just point out and go, excuse me, but shouldn't we all be looking over there at that? And I wanted to pick up on that and do something with that, which is why I wanted to create this pressure cooker atmosphere uh, where we can then examine really you know how six and a half thousand people can come to terms with it and and possibly get you know buy their way out it also sort of speaks to that feeling that otherwise intelligent adults have of just assuming there were some grown-ups in charge somewhere. yes and yes. someone knows what they're doing. Yes. And actually politics is shown. In yes. And, and that isn't is that the kind of great revelation as that as you get older, I'm considerably older than you, but you know, when you reach my age, you suddenly realise nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. You know, you thought, you were taught as a child. Exactly. That sort of deferential <laughs> thing. Various people, you know, doctors knew what they were doing. The church knew what it was doing. Government knew, the banks, the economists, they all sound like they know what they're talking about. And then as you get older, you realise, no, it's all based on calculated guesswork and and human behaviour, really. And how do you go about deciding, right, I want to do something set in space? I don't get the feeling that you're someone who sort of sits in the attic and toils at three in the morning. How do you work? What's your process? Uh, I used to be like that, but, you know, once you start having children, then <laughs> your sleep pattern is good. Uh, so I'm very much, I kind of, long days but weekdays and try yeah. and keep the weekends free in the, and the evenings as much as possible. I've always been a 
sci-fi fan and a space fan. I'm fascinated by space and space travel and the physics of it. I never really wanted to do a sci-fi that was full of aliens and laser guns and things like that, you know, because other people do that so well. I wanted to do something that was set in space, but just adhered to the laws of physics. In fact, Josh Gad, who plays Herman Judd, the kind of the moneyed owner of the show, he plays someone who doesn't understand why he can't change the laws of physics by throwing money at it. And did you put a lot of effort into making sure the physics were right? Yeah, we went to, you know, Virgin Galactic okay. in Mojave Desert and SpaceX in LA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and talked to the scientists there and the engineers and to just to get a sense of how it would work. And the thing that you find is that these ships will not have enormous amounts of fuel it's all down to hitting angles at certain you know and swinging around certain moons and and so on that's the thing because just to get the sheer weight moving it fast enough you can't carry lots of fuel really so it's about it's about that so of course in this program where they miss a moon by you know 0.2 percent of a degree that can mean the difference between eight weeks and three years. I remember reading some story about uh, the NASA launched a satellite to Mars about 15 years ago, and it didn't land. It just skated over the atmosphere and shot off into space. And it's because somewhere along the line, someone in NASA had written a figure down as inches instead of centimetres. Wow. And that then led to $6 billion yeah. worth of waste. <laughs> yeah. And did they welcome you in, NASA, and... Were they happy for you, knowing that yeah. you were probably going to be taking the mix? Yeah, and... well, uh, but then I assured them I wanted to get it right rather yeah. than just, in, you know, invent these things. So I think they're quite keen to show you, you know, how they work it out. Uh, for me, it was quite thrilling to be in mission control and still see the signals coming in from Voyager with the time, they had the time of voyage up, so it was like 40 years, yeah, yeah, yeah. three months, two days, <laughs> you know, and the signals were still still coming in from, like, outside the solar system, so I found that very exciting. You didn't have to sneak in like you famously no. did with the, the State, State Department. Department. No, when I was in, we were researching in the loop, and somebody told me, I said I wanted to get around the State Department, somebody said, oh, just go to the reception and say, you're from the BBC and you're here for the 12.30, which I did, and they just showed me in. <laughs> and... <laughs> I had a little BBC pass, but it was just a photograph of me with the words BBC next to it. I mean, it was like a child of three could have come yeah. up with it. And so I found myself wandering around the State Department taking photographs, because I'm, you know, for research purposes. I thought, this is both kind of fun and also possibly international espionage. <laughs> I don't know which. <laughs> then someone came up to me and went, Excuse me? And I said, I'm here for the 1230. He went, Oh, it's just down there. And uh, I went in and it was um, Condoleezza Rice's press briefing, and it was very boring. But that again was a, was that point as making you, you these buildings on the outside impress you, especially in Washington. They, they look very the huge and like ancient Rome yeah. marble pillars, temples of like perfection. And then you go in and you realise no, it's lack security and nobody quite checking up on you. And, and it's people sitting in boring meetings. Unsure very what's boring going meetings. On. Yeah. yeah. In the State Department, I discovered the chairs don't mask the desks because in America. They're very down on federal spending. Yeah. So they give these buildings, you know, as small a budget as possible. So they couldn't afford they couldn't afford matching chairs and desks. So they bought cheap desks and then cheap chairs. 
the arms of which were too high, so you couldn't actually <laughs> you couldn't actually put your seat under the desk. You know, yeah. so you were actually You're sitting. Too, uh, everyone's too far. Away. Everyone's too far yeah. away from the desk, but it saved money, so that's what they're stuck with. Did you ever get inside buildings in Whitehall when you were doing the thick of it? Did I get inside? I have been round the Treasury. Yes, okay. the Treasury and Ministry for Culture, Media okay. and Sport. Yes, very dull. Yeah, very dull. Yes, <laughs> as indeed is the West Wing. When you go around the West Wing. It's tiny, tiny corridors. It's like a rabbit warren. But people love to say that they work in the West Wing. So given the choice between that and a huge set of offices in another building, they'd rather... So you see these four-star generals in the West Wing sitting on a chair in a corridor with a laptop <laughs> and then they because they want to say they work in the West Wing. Was there any part of you that thought that what's happening in politics on both, on both sides of the Atlantic that made you want to do something that was... The question that people listening to this podcast will be wanting yeah. me to ask is, is there any hope of you bringing back the thick of it? <laughs> um, you see, the, the thick of it worked on the basis that we knew what the conventions of politics were and therefore how to wander away from them. But if the conventions don't exist anymore yeah. or if they're being reinvented every day, it's very difficult to know what the what's abnormal. Yeah. And politicians are sort of inventing their own. They're being sub. They're subverting the rules of politics deliberately. Yeah. You know, Donald Trump is a kind of, you know, he'd call himself a disruptor, but he's also like an entertainer. He's a. He's a. You know, he's a self-basting, comic <laughs> observation, on his presidency. Yeah. And therefore, the comedians I find who are most adept at getting to the truth of what's going on act like journalists so you've got John Oliver and his team of researchers and his archive troll and doing a, an actual polemic an argument using yeah. factual extracts from speeches and and research to mount both an argument and a com kind of comic puncturing of that argument you know so it's like Politicians have become comedians and comedians have become journalists. <laughs> so and journalists are now becoming politicians. Yeah. That's the other. You know, just so everyone's moved round yeah, one in that triangle. Yeah, yeah. So um <laughs> and everything is so um feral at the moment and just changing shape constantly that I felt actually Avenue 5 is a sort of response to that yeah. in that I wanted to okay you, you sort of need to stand outside a bit you know to another time period and take this environment not so much the political environment but the social environment the the kind of the is the people and 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 look at how they're being affected by it even just watching one uh, episode of Avenue mm. 5 the thing that strikes me when the credits come up is the number of people that you work with yes who you've worked with a lot before yes. is that how you yes like to work i like to so I've always getting new people in and new writers in, but, but working with writers I've worked with before, working with people like um, Rebecca Front, who, who's in it, who I've worked with since, you know, since On the Hour, really. Yeah. Um, I like that. So you're sort of building up a kind of repertory company of people that you can call upon, but you're always introducing new people, new directors, new writers, and new performers yeah, at the yeah. same time. I like that because it gives you, it gives you with certain people... You you have the shorthand already. You kind of know how you want to play it and, and, and so on. But also I like to be surprised. So I, I like bringing in new writers and, and new performers because I want, I want to see something new as well, really. So I'm always refreshing it, but at the same time feeling familiar enough with what you've got that you can then start adapting it to something new. You mentioned Rebecca Front. She you also worked with her on on the hour. It's just a phenomenal alumni who've sort of spread out. And across. it's like we never we kind of came together for the show. We weren't all at college together or at, you know, we came together for on the hour. And 
and was still, you know, working in groups of twos and threes. Uh, we're still all in touch with each other, and I'm kind of. It pleases me that we we sort of were still all in speaking terms. <laughs> <laughs> the way that we were, you sat there thinking everyone in this room is going to be a star. Did you think that you'd sort of struck gold? Um, I think we all thought there was something interesting about the show, and that it was going in a place that we hadn't couldn't quite put a finger on with anything else that was on at the time. I don't think we had any notion that we were going to, you know, all, you know. I, I, Steve, I, I think we all thought, this guy's incredible. Steve I mean, Steve Coogan, yeah. you know, he, he sort of, I didn't really know him, but I was recommended, spoke to him. He did lots of voices and impressions at the time. But I, you know, I, I was keen for him to, like, improvise. And when he improvised, it was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, and he's very quiet and softly spoken and he was slightly ner- nervous, I think, when he arrived and and then he would get into these improvisations and they were like and I'd end up broadcasting them almost unedited and then the Alan Partridge character came very very suddenly from that kind of atmosphere that creative atmosphere and that's an example of something that arrived kind of more or less fully formed Alan Partridge just like a click of fingers this this character I just asked him to do a sports reporter generic sports reporter and I came out with this voice that was a sort of an amalgam of Motson and Coleman but but you know Gary Robertson on <laughs> today probably all of them in one and somebody just said he's a Partridge and someone else said yeah and he's an Allen and, and that was it, it. Was just instant he, he emerged like a like a fall kind of <laughs> you, know, you know how they're born and they just get up and start walking in a slightly kind of dizzy way it was like it was like that and where are you in your current sort of love-hate relationship with Adam Partridge I know in the past you've talked about how <laughs> making a particularly a whole series yeah was such a traumatic sort it's of slightly wearing because you are spending the day all day every day with Alan Partridge <laughs> in the room. not with Steve Steve is great but but with Alan because Alan's trope as it were is that he doesn't stop talking you know he has a voice for radio which is you cannot allow dead air to occur dead air is a crime so so he's so the method of writing is to just keep Alan is to wind Alan up and fire new thoughts at him and just see what comes out so you do spend about eight hours of unfiltered Alan Partridge every day which you you might think is fun but uh, <laughs> after three or after, four weeks of yeah, it, a couple of months you, of that, you are kind of chewing the furniture, yeah. really. So I think what we do with Alan is like, and he has lasted all these years, I think, because we didn't do one series and then do it again and again and again. We sort of took him out of his box every four or five years. And it reborn in a slightly different and, environment. And then he'd well. aged yeah. in real time. Yeah. So, you know, he had grown in his opinions or matured or or immatured, depending on how you look <laughs> at it. So he, he becomes different every time. And Steve is always like 10 years behind Alan in age. But over the years, you he's know, caught up. begins to yeah. look like he's <laughs> <laughs> caught up. If you go back to On the Hour, yeah. which of that incredible group of talent, they've gone off and done stuff, Yeah, which of their projects would you most like to, which they've done without you, would you most like to have done? Uh, oh, heavens, that's an interesting one. I mean, I loved Chris Morris's Jam and Blue yeah. Jam, actually. I thought that was so, you know, it was almost like, it was just like rewriting the rules again. Yeah. It was like, yes, I'm going to do these slightly provocatively dark subjects turn them into sketches but then perform them like they weren't even comedy perform them slowly and with music and and almost like defy you to laugh and yet the more defined it is the funnier it becomes yes that for me i think was the most 
original and most impressive thing? I think I would have spoiled it, to be honest. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'd have worried, oh, the viewers might not like this. No, be, I think I'd have thought, oh, if you, you could get another joke in if you sped it up a bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> get a whole new sketch in at the end. You need a punchline. No. <laughs> and what about, do you think, because it was quite a long time ago that that was on. Yes. Yeah. There's not really anything like that. I mean, most, a lot of TV comedy now is quite old-fashioned you know the stuff which is you know big on bbc one type yeah but you look at stuff like well i'm a big fan of this country you look at this country which ostensibly might be a mockumentary yes we've seen that before but again the scenes you know the writing is such that it dares to be full of non sequiturs it dares to take you down routes that you weren't expecting it dares to not have a, a kind of neatly written ending it dares to be messy, really, and unpredictable, which I like. Because it's it, actually that's more real than a normal... Exactly, yeah. And yeah. yet it's funny. You know, yeah. it's not it's not boring because it's yeah, real. Yeah. It's it's hilarious because it's real. Yeah. Okay, still to come, I'll ask Armando about creating omnishambles, which was then used by politicians, and what he really thinks of Dominic Cummings. We'll be back after this short break. 
it is the proper story. Oh yeah, if you go with in, a lot of the proper yeah, if you go dialogue. into the book, there's a great scene that never gets shown in any adaptation of of when David gets drunk for the first time and he just describes the whole of London swirling in front of him and it's like that scene in um, The Wolf of Wall Street when they're kind of <laughs> crawling along the floor. He describes him crawling up the stairs because he can't stand up, or he describes falling in love with Dora, his first girlfriend, and being so besotted by that he sees her name in the clouds and and everywhere he goes on the side of an omnibus bus he sees the word dora and it's all quite surreal but none of that is in, in, the in a adaptations. sort of patience yeah a sort of tea time sunday drama i think they go for the plot and actually yeah. it's not it's about the language yeah. and the characters and the the great kind of imagery and and the one-liners as well yeah. there's a lot of obviously language from dickens yeah. which just sort of enters the national yes. vocabulary but you've done quite a bit of that i mean omni shambles is a well i'll prime example i'll credit that to Tony Roach, one of our writers who came up with that. But yes, it sort of, uh, I think that's the point where I stopped doing the thick of it, when it when it entered the OED and also <laughs> when the likes of Cameron and Ed Miliband at the time were quoting it at question time. I sort of thought, no, stop it. You're not stop so- it. This is meant to make you feel <laughs> awful. <laughs> not, not to be a kind of aspirational <laughs> guidebook. Um, <laughs> um, and there is something about, in particular, I think the last couple of years, that politics has been so mad that mm. people have used, having seen the tick of it, as a sort of reference point for sort of thinking, well, yes. you know, quiet back people isn't a million miles away from Brexit means Brexit. You know, the sort yes. of you yes. could somebody in a room has had to come up squeezed with something. Middle. Squeezed middle. Do you remember Nick Clegg's squeeze, alarm, alarm clock, clock Britain, Britain? The squeezed middle. Yeah. You know, and you know that there's a group of people all aged about 20 sitting in a room writing these down and trying them out. Some of them are taking bets as to whether a minister will say them or not. <laughs> I know this. I know yeah. this. <laughs> there was a story, wasn't there, that Theresa May said something in the House of Commons or got yes. based only on a bet. Yes. Yeah, she didn't know it. Yes, there was like tea at the Ritz or something. Something like that, yes. State. One of these punchlines that she she did so well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I once on the Friday night, no, the election night armistice on the 1997 election, David Schneider, Peter Bainham and I did this thing of we we made a stand-up act out of politicians' jokes. (laughs) One Tory, that was me, one Labour, I think that was David, and one Lib Dem, uh, Peter, and and performed them at comedy gigs. But as our own material, we didn't say that they were actually stolen from, yeah, Jokes. And then we filmed the, the, the yeah. gigs dying. <laughs> and it, I mean, it was dreadful. It was, you know, it was great telly. It was horrible because it was like, it was like knowing that we were going to go out and get announced as ourselves, but we'll then tell terrible jokes. It was that an idea which seemed much better in the room you came up with it rather than <laughs> well, just before you're about to go on? Yeah, I mean, it was great watching it back because obviously the, yeah, the, the audience works, reactions yeah. were amazing. But yes, you'd, you, we hadn't thought through that we would then have to do it. And it was horrible. You know, it's dreadful standing up on stage at the comedy store telling jokes knowing by conservatives. Before, at least if you go on thinking yeah. I've got some good stuff and it doesn't work, that's quite bad. But, but if you go on thinking I've got some dreadful stuff and I'm about to say it <laughs> as me, yeah. Is, yeah. It, is there, Do you look across politics and think there's anyone who gives you any hope as <laughs> uh, a citizen rather than as a Well, comedian? I kind of liked it when, I mean, they've all been defeated or left politics now. There was something kind of slightly admirable about the last parliament and, and these defiant ones, people defying their parties on the left and the right, I thought was was quite good. And, and also, you know, I, I write this stuff because I'm, you know, I, I like politics. I want it to be good. You know, I, I, you know, and I think everyone does. And the stuff I write or make is made out of frustration, I think, rather than, or anger at things like 
<clears throat> I mean, think of it emerged after the war in Iraq because I just wanted to look at how how did a decision like that get made when everyone was saying, this is ridiculous, yeah. don't do this. So I wanted to look at just the process of where power lies in Westminster and how it... And, and, the, and the, the key is, surprise, surprise, if you are a prime minister with a big majority, you can do anything you like in the UK. You know, we have a very unfettered system here. We don't have checks and balances. We had them in the last parliament because the Prime Minister didn't have a majority. Yeah. But once a Prime Minister has a majority, you know, Boris Johnson can get rid of the Supreme Court if he wants. Yeah. You know, he may well do. Uh, move the House of Lords to Move the House of Lords. You know, you can yeah. do what the hell you like. And and uh, in a way that you can't actually do if you're the French president or, or even the American president, you know, you, there are checks and balances there that we actually don't have. It's strange how we've gone sort of full mm. circle in that 15 years from... New Labour's, you know, big majorities can do what they like. Yes. The opposition is a sort of a bit yes. of a joke. And we're suddenly, having thought that politics was going to be mad forever, yes. we seem to have ended up back there. We're in a strange situation, though, because it, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's a strange, still a coalition of sorts, because it is this coalition with the, with the North, who don't normally vote Conservative. And it'd be interesting to see how, how the government will play, play that out. I don't think they can play as naturally to their default of minimum government, minimum interference, minimum size of the state, reduce, reduce, pull back. It's it's already the language is changing. It's about inclusivity. It's about it's about involving the state and the state involved you know, it's allowed it's about a kind of involvement in people's lives. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out. It'll be interesting well to see how the Labour Party reacts to it. Yes. The Tories aren't all cutting evil put everyone in the workhouse type Tories, then how do yeah, they yes, sort of play yeah. off against Well, them? there's a, now an interesting debate going on uh, in the Labour leadership, which probably should have happened about five years ago, as to what Labour is for. Um, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And just finally, what about Dominic Cummings? He feels like a character that even you'd have slightly balked at creating. I know we had Stuart Pearson, yes, who exactly. was based on the sort of uh, an element of Steve Hilton and an element of these sort of think tank guru type um, should never be taken out of the box and put in charge of a department <laughs> type individuals well exactly I mean he he is his own, again he's his own parody I mean that blog uh, post recently is like indecipherable gobbledygook but uh, you laugh but he's running the country yeah you, yeah, yeah you laugh up until that bit yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. he is actually running the country so now what? <laughs> yeah, you can email his Gmail account or whatever it is and ask yeah, him, yeah, yeah. that's the best yeah. you can do. Yeah, maybe you, I should apply. If you ever, when <laughs> doing any of your sort of political projects thought, yeah. maybe I should have a go at, you know, rather than just taking the mick. If you, is entering politics ever cost you work? No, I mean, I sort of, it's the whole party thing that I'm not sure I could stomach because I can't, I don't like the idea of, I don't like the idea of being labelled, but I also don't like the idea of signing up to, you know, a set of policies, some of which I agree with and some of which I don't. It's like yeah. going into management at the BBC, which I did very, very briefly, having to defend programmes, which I knew I didn't like. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I soon got out and I think I'd come unstuck so pretty soon. So if you could go straight in as sort of president and supreme over, yeah. it would be okay. But the rise is the Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. One week. of these things where, you know, voted in by acclamation rather than by <laughs> getting the public to make a decision. 
I, mean, I can speak to you for ages, but I think we've unfortunately we've run out of time. I should just say that Avenue Five episode one is already available to watch on Now TV, and the rest of the season is on Sky One. And the personal history of David Copperfield is in cinemas this week as well. I'm Andy Nugent. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify, wherever you listen, and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.